This evening's talk is <clears throat> about metta and beginning with uh, some words from the Buddha. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. <clears throat> the Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. This evening we'll consider one of the crucial teachings and practices of this transformation, <clears throat> which classically is called a divine abiding. The radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving kindness and acceptance, unconditional friendship, the experience of connection and appreciation that isn't fraught with clinging, attachment, and not necessarily even a sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of the heart arises quite naturally when our attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. And so beginning uh, with an old story. It's said that the uh, Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks uh, who went into a particular and seemingly very congenial forest uh, for their three-month rainy season retreat. A forest that was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during the rains retreat, and who were also happy to keep the monks' bowl, alms bowls filled during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and began practicing vipassana. It's said that unseen beings, the forest-dwelling devas who live there, became fearful of the monks, and also felt quite put out of their home when they uh, saw that the monks weren't just uh, visiting the forest for a day or two, um, but seemed to be going about to stay for a long time. And so these forest-dwelling beings began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and sights and to emit some very distasteful odors, hoping that this would uh, make the monks leave their forest. And soon enough, the monks became quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, broke their concentration. And some even developed fever and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all began to feel that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and related their tale, to which the Buddha responded. My beloved monks, he said, go back to exactly the same forest and practice your meditation there. Well, the monks responded uh, to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that forest again, saying that it was impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response to this was, Dear monks, because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a true weapon of protection. And it's said that it was at this point that the Buddha offered them the metta teachings and practice. Out of their great respect uh, for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so, armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to that same forest. 
for a while continuing to experience feelings of fear and anxiety, while at the same time they very diligently and virtuously practiced metta. Soon there were no more fearful sights or sounds. And whereas the uh, forest-dwelling devas had previously been hostile towards the monk, the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and welcome and even reverence began to be the devas' experience, along with a sense of being connected, like with family. And the inclination then arose in these forest-dwelling devas to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from particular dangers that might be lurking in the forest so that the monks could practice their meditation peacefully. After recovering, strengthening, and deepening their concentration through the practice of metta, it said that all 500 monks at some point began practicing vipassana meditation, again, uh, with metta as their foundation. And it said that because they were able to practice a meditation calmly and peacefully, they all became arahants. They all became enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless with a heart, a mind that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that connects. It's the energy that keeps it all together. This capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice and energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a natural, heartfelt wish directed towards ourself, another particular person, or a group of beings, wishing ourself and them to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences begin to pale. They're of course important on one level. But within this incredible, radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being front and center. Sometimes my experience of metta, of human kindness, is like the sunshine. That warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, warm our whole being, and then radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does the capacity to connect, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, 
where does it come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness. The experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really such people are very, very rare. Every one of us here has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given freely. So for instance, just a a very simple, very ordinary experience. Last week when I walked into the post office, someone opened the door for me. I I didn't know this person. We looked at each other and I thanked them and felt a warm connection between us. Just that. That's unconditional kindness. And each of us, of course, have experienced kindness with people we know, with people that we care about, kindness expressed with a more overt and stronger energy, that unconditional warmth of loving kindness. This is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. We grow it. We cultivate it. And we give it out. Offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential and beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and that we give is always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving-kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, or in some way their help. Unconditional kindness given freely, it's a choice, a very natural choice that others make and that we make. And it has an effect on us. It has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, from which all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from. The other three divine abidings. Compassion, karuna in Pali, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita, and equanimity, upeka. It's also the capacity of heart, of mind, that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and very important, patience. With each and all of these qualities being an essential ground of the practice and the process of awakening. When I was in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary uh, Chinese written character for love uh, 
was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very uh, simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta, metta love, in contemporary Chinese is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with the metaphor of breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty. Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the texts, it's often spoken of as non-ill will. The absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, our body, our mind, however they're manifesting from moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others. No aversion in any direction. No comparing ourselves in relationship to others. No comparison. No conceit. No pride. No self-depreciation. No self-judgment. And no judgment, no depreciation of others the absence of ill will in all directions. Here in retreat, how often might we think of the person next to us or the person on the other side of the room? How often might we think that their practice is so much better than ours? Or maybe the comparing mind says that that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. The felt judgment that they're better than me, or that I'm no good, or I'm great, no sleepiness, no movement. Just look at that person nodding away, restless, moving around, etc. Obviously, this isn't metta. We're creating a separation, me and other. The heart, the mind is contracted, and it's uncomfortable. Mindfully recognizing and acknowledging this is part of our practice. And one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta and also to offer the other person in the equation metta. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we are identified with and attached to in either a positive or in a negative way as our self, our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A mind, a heart, filled with metta, has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings, not only those that are close to us in our life, those that it's easy to care about, or those who might be useful or amusing or pleasing to us in some way. A heart, a mind that's filled with metta, 
holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity to connect and care for any being, all beings. And from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is then really limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The heart-mind of metta connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, patience, and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As you're practicing here in the very specific ways that each of you are, essentially cultivating and developing a concentrated clarity of attention, cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness. Some of you are also at times working with the practice of metta in relationship to its purifying and healing aspects. And as some of you are learning, metta practice can also be a deep, powerful, and potentially even a profound concentration practice. In any case, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and mind from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong energies that move through our mind, through our heart and our body, begin to unwind, to weaken, to fade, and even potentially dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the great Indian spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who taught through dialogue with his students, someone once asked him, what can make me love? And his response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and so important to me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. Metta doesn't uh, necessarily depend on that at all. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that with which we might not agree with or connect with that with which we might not agree with uh, in terms of beings who act in ways that we might not like or might even not condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep universal level but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites, no favoring one over the other with metta. 
So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin then to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. Reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, the world would have flown apart, broken apart, long ago. There have been periods throughout our human history up until this very moment when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world. And periods when the world has been or is increasingly unsettled more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer and poet Dina Metzger said, there are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is no time to go slowly. There is no time not to love. And the Buddha said it perfectly, of course. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground the basis and the impetus that our thoughts, words, and actions spring from. If our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never know. I'd like now to spend uh, a few moments um, exploring some expectations that we might think uh, that the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect or to look for something that we don't know, something that we've never experienced, or to look for something that we may have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught. We can get stuck in expecting this. It's limiting, actually. Metta is, isn't sentimental. It's not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. Metta even is, isn't even necessarily always a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind that's free from ill will, free from greed, fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in the absence of greed, in the absence of any form of aversion. It's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. 
and it may not be a feeling that we think or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourselves and others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through, and let go of along the way of our practice. I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a, a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar that demonstrates this very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples and foremost in terms of discernment, this discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. This story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. And the monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. <clears throat> and this is the sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati, in Jetta's Grove, at Anathapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable, Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down on one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to leave on a country journey. The Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. The Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk came and spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Blessed One called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda went around to all the monks' lodgings, lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. When he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave twelve, twelve years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Bhikkhu Rahula was the Buddha's son when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth. Whenever people throw, whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, foul unclean substances like dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. Yet for all that, 
the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him, and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus and blood, and yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful, and yet for all that the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk, and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing, and yet for all that the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like an untouchable youth, a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day a monk who does not practice loving-kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. And at one point the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I have committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accuse the Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One in the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and made amends, we pardon you. It is a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. The Buddha then turned to the Venerable Sariputta, saying, 
Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. The Buddha had a sense of humor. (laughs) And Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. May he too forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is one of the best medicines, a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this even in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, giving her pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces of banana from me and put it into my mouth with a big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and pure expression of the heart of kindness. A while ago I read a book um, that was about and by a 102-year-old black man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up uh, on his family's farm in East Texas, and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family, and so he never uh, attended school and never learned how to read, until at the age of 98, he decided to attend a literacy program. He learned how to read at the age of 98, and then wrote a book about himself. It's an amazing, inspiring, and very illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. So I'd like to share a little bit of this uh, book with you. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard, Uh, Richard's the man who helped George write the book. Uh, And they are talking together about George, who at the age of 101 uh, was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. So Richard's speaking. You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that care about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can take time to just say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, 
And if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. The cultivation, the practice of metta is metta itself. As an example uh, of the stability and beauty of a heart, a mind steeped in kind-heartedness, continuing on uh, with a little more from our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. And during the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was kind of his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking. She didn't see me in the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs and another bowl she set up on the shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace. When I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been just fine. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to hurt me, insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could go on, she could believe what she wanted, but I weren't no animal, and I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If she did, If I did, she would go on believing that way. And maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch that I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, You don't need to come back anymore. I said, That's right, I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a letting go a release, a relinquishment of what we've held on to, much of what we've grasped onto very tightly. 
there's a great release of the contractions of the heart. The past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. It's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. It's not so easy at times, but it's very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy that's constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta. In closing the talk, I'd like to uh, share a story with you about a young Native American woman that some of you have heard before. It's my one of my favorite metta stories. A young Native American woman named Sue Ann Big Crow. Sue Ann was born on March 15th in 1974 on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And she grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom home. Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights went on. And the only after-school activities she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind. Unsupervised wanderings and later cruising around in cars were completely out. Sue Ann said that because of this, she and her sister had to come up with uh, their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize much outside of school. Chick Big Crow, Sue Ann's mother, was strongly anti-drug and alcohol belonging to the small but adamant minority in, uh, on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on, on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything. So Sue Ann was the one that called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Maybe because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drugs and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. And Raul said, you have to understand that Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group that she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade uh, particular certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or another, they did them all. Cross-country running and track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she'd heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. And she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of their family home patio, uh, which her mother and sister uh, grew very tired of, (laughs) the sound of it. So for variety, she would shoot uh, layups uh, against the gutter and the drain pipe 
until they came loose and from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns uh, near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When the team from Pine Ridge, when teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and the fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted. Their fans will feel unwelcome. The host gym will be dense with hostility. And the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was in the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge team, the Lady Thorpes, went to Leed to play a basketball game. And Sue Ann was by that time a full member of the team. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run on the court, run onto the court, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. And after that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually, the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway, leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder and louder. Some fans, in fact, were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservation, reservations receiving federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie Corey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise and some bumped into each other. Coach Zamiga at the rear of the line didn't know why they had stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. And then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, draped it over her shoulders, and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She'd competed in many, many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful, modest, and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. She began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, 
using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast, and the audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering very loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Lead. And I agree. It was Sue Ann's lion's roar. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation, do what seems to come naturally, and then after the fact realize that you handled the situation very differently from the way you used to. The natural, effortless expression of awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time, what you do seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal. You might say to a friend who asks uh, how you were be able, how you were able to stay present and do what needed to be done so easily. But actually, it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and changes the lives of everyone you encounter. In a little poem from Hafiz that he calls, The Sun Never Says. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because of the power, because the power behind his words were born out of loving care and great compassion. <laughs> And closing this evening's talk with a valentine that I received a few years ago. And underneath the words that I'll share with you in a moment was a little round red sticker. And in the little round red sticker were these words saying, this is love. And this is the uh, instruction, actually, of the Valentine. Take this, take this little tiny label. Stick it on your dining table. Stick it on your favorite book. 
Stick it where you always look. Stick it on some brand new shoes. Stick it on the evening news. Stick it on a broken heart. Stick it on a hospice chart. Stick it on a violin. Stick it on your thinnest skin. Stick it on a long lost friend. Stick it on a bill to send. Stick it on your desk or wall. Use it on a conference call. Stick it on a microphone. Feel it when you're all alone. Put it on a mirror, yes. See it when your hair's a mess. Stick it on the Senate floor. Stick it on the White House door. Stick it on the other side. Stick it where it cannot hide. Can you see love everywhere? We hope we can. We hope we dare. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. 